Between the kids being home and hosting, everything in our house gets used up in summer. With Instacart, I can save money by stocking up on all my favorite summer brands. I save time by getting everything delivered in as fast as an hour. And I save myself a sink full of dirty dishes by stocking up on paper plates for the annual summer cookout. Save more on summer essentials? Spend more time enjoying summer. Add summer to cart. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders. Offer valid for a limited time. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Welcome to The Final Four is Not on the Schedule. I'm your host, Eric, alongside with expert analyst, Rod. Thanks for joining us on the best MSU basketball podcast featuring an in-depth recruiting, game matchup, and post-game analysis. We dive deep to give you the best tools to enjoy the Spartans and impress your friends and family. Well, Rod, here again, and it's another pregame show, which is a good sign when it comes to the NCAA tournament. That means you've advanced to the second round in a tough-fought match against a Davidson, and now we're going to be going up against Duke, which is, of course, a storied program. They beat Cal State Fullerton. They're the number two seed. And I guess what are your general impressions is coming to this game? Because I think, as we talked in the last postgame show, I think I'm a little satisfied with the season if it were to end now, but I'm, I feel a lot better about the team than I did a couple weeks ago, for sure. Yeah, there's, there's no question about that. And, and that's what, you know, winning four of your last five will do for the mindset of any fan, you know, which is where Michigan state is right now, believe it or not. Uh, and the one loss came to Purdue in a competitive game, which, you know, third game in three days, you couldn't really be that upset about that. So, uh, yeah. And certainly a game that's getting, and you're seeing it today in the media coverage, the NCAA, the guys who the committee who put the NCAA tournament field together, know what they're doing. <laughs> and despite the insistence that, no, 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 we don't think about matchups or media attention or television ratings or any of that stuff, we put it together. They're lying. Uh, this was what they wanted to see happen. I think they could have lived with the David versus Goliath element of Davidson against Duke because it's two in Davidson's in North Carolina, correct? I believe so. Yeah. So, in-state schools you know that that would have had some juice to it but not nearly what we're seeing now uh Izzo against k for the sixth time in the ncaa tournament uh which is pretty remarkable uh for the 16th time i believe overall so those pictures are are very different looking things for if you're a michigan state fan I think most MSU people will not be surprised by this stat. Izzo's record against Krzyzewski head-to-head all-time is 3-12. and 12. And we know we've seen that. And, and frankly, not a lot of heartbreakers in there. Normally, when Michigan State's been beaten by Duke, it's been relatively comprehensive. It hasn't been last-second shots or questionable foul calls. They've just been beaten. Most recently, in the... Um, fall of 2019 or early winter, depending upon how you want to define it in the big 10 ACC challenge, uh, Michigan state got beat Cassius Winston senior year, the COVID year. Uh, they got beat by Duke pretty comprehensively at the Breslin center, but there's a couple more optimistic ways to look at this matchup. If you're an MSU fan, one is that in the tournament is always two and three, right? So he won in a Sweet 16 matchup in 2005. 
And then he won in an Elite Eight in 2019, which I think everybody remembers those two games very vividly. He lost in he's lost in two national semifinals, 1999 in a very competitive game and 2015 in a game that wasn't very competitive. And then he lost in the Sweet 16 in 2013. You will note to further buttress my point here that one difference there, four of those matchups have been the first game of weekend and MSU's one and three. But the one that was the second game of the weekend, which was 2019, when MSU's way. And that brings us to Tom Izzo in the second game of a weekend. His record all time in the NCAA tournament, the second game of a weekend, is 23 and six. That is a remarkable, you're, you're talking about nearly a 75% winning clip in the NCAA tournament. Yeah, that is remarkable. Absolutely remarkable. And we touched on it last night in the Davidson post game that and you're starting to hear it said some today. Izzo's mantra has always been what, what he's told his teams has always been. You get me through the first game. I'll get you through the second. And history says that more often than not, vastly more often than not, he's been correct. Uh, I think that he's been given credit with a lot of innovation and a lot of sweat in terms of how Michigan state has pulled that off because for the most part, it's been credited to the preparation that they do on a very short turnaround. You have these one day turnarounds, Michigan state is just renowned for getting quick film work done on opponents uh, making good use of all the time they have available to the coaching staff and to the players, including walkthroughs and the hotel ballrooms, all that kind of stuff. And generally speaking, Michigan State has looked really, really well prepared in these games. So, again, it depends on what prism you're looking at it through. And I get the people who want to look at 3-12. and 12. <laughs> Yeah. But I'm going to choose to go the other way and say, you know what? This for, and for other reasons, too, which we'll get to, this is one where Michigan State, I think, has a real opportunity. They're not the favorite, and I'm not saying they should be, but they've got a real opportunity to win this game. Yeah, no question. And I think, in many ways, Izzo's coaching style, or the way he builds, there's a crescendo to the season, in which the beginning of the season is just, we're figuring out who we are, who can do what, what our roles are going to be, and then he hopes to develop that leadership throughout the year, and to figure out his rotation, tightens it up. And that really the whole season is uh, not in order to just ignore the Big Ten, although I think people have probably argued that at some point, but it really is to prepare for this tournament. I mean, I feel like he recognized early on, probably probably before anyone else in Michigan State really had a feel for it, that the most important thing to focus on was getting to the tournament and being successful there When it, for a program that, as we've talked before, you know, they're, they were there occasionally, but they were not a perennial you know, um, a participant. And so to, to actually have your whole program focus on that success has really defined him as in his legacy. I mean, whatever happens from here on out, I mean, I think that his, and to your point, you know, he has people working in the video uh, department to make sure they have all kinds of film throughout the year. I mean, I remember before the internet, they had people who were recording like every game on television in order in, yeah. in the op on the off chance you, you know, run into some team that happened to be on in November or something like that. You've seen some film on them. 
I mean, now, of course, with technology, that's not his issue anymore. But that is definitely something that he has put a focus on. And it, and it, I mean, it shows to your point. I mean, the preparation they have, I think rarely do you see a Michigan State team look unprepared for a game. They may not execute properly. They may look tight or something like that. But it's never like, well, they didn't, they just look like they had a curveball thrown them. They just weren't ready for it. Yeah. And, and I think you're right about technology and just time and coaches getting savvy to this maybe shrinking that gap, but I, I still put faith in Izzo in these scenarios over virtually anybody else in the sport. Uh, doesn't mean he's going to win for sure. As we said, he has taken six losses. Of course, a bunch of those have come in the final four. In fact, I think four of the six, no, I'm sorry. Only one of the six, I'm thinking first weekend, only one of the six has come in the final four. Um, he's had some round of 32 losses lately, um, both of in 17 and 18. They had round of 32 losses, so the round they're in now. Uh, one of those was kind of expected against Kansas, and the next year the infamous Syracuse game at the Palace <laughs> was not expected. Yeah, uh, But that wasn't, I would argue, that was not a preparation one because Michigan State got shots against that zone. They just didn't hit them. Yeah, right. Um you know, the Elite Eight losses, Texas was a tough one. They were basically playing against home court advantage and a very good Texas team with a very good college player in TJ Ford. And then one that haunts a lot of MSU fans, the one to UConn at Madison Square Garden um, in the 2014 season, where I think many people believe Michigan State had a legitimate shot to win the whole thing. I did. And they got beat by a UConn team that was just a team of destiny. And and I will note for the record, a UConn team that I believe was a seven seed in that tournament, okay. just like Michigan State. Um, so, you know, we'll see if that has any kind of meaning uh, <laughs> to us as we go forward. But, yeah, it's it's about preparation, I think, and about his ability to get a team dialed into that preparation and able to execute it. And – I, you know, I, I will admit to being caught a little bit on the back foot with regard to this team. Uh, I, you know, people talk about, well, Izzo cares about March and he'll take losses in January and February to make sure things are right in March. And you see Michigan State improve late in the seasons and building to something. And often that's been correct. I think the 2015 team that went to the Final Four was a classic example of that. That's a team that lost to Texas Southern in December and had people seriously wondering whether they would even continue the tournament streak. They built through the course of Big Ten play, and you could see down the stretch in the regular season, they were getting better. And then especially in the Big Ten tournament, they got to the finals, pushed a, probably the best team Wisconsin's ever had to the wire, to overtime in the Big Ten tournament final, in a game that both teams clearly wanted. And – MSU probably should have won that game. They deserved to. There was a questionable call, if I remember, on a baseline out of bounds that went against them that really cost them. But you could see it building with that team. I'm not going to say, and that team was a seven seed. Undeservedly, that team was very clearly underseeded. Remains to be seen about this one. But that team, you could see it coming. And many other teams, the 2019 team that went to the Final Four, Michigan State was building. At the end of the year, that that team clearly it was it was not a surprise to me that they got to the Elite Eight, and not a surprise to me that they gave Duke a very good game there. 
It might have surprised many people that they beat Duke just because Michigan State fans had been conditioned <laughs> to lose to Duke. Yeah. At that point, Izzo only had one victory over them. Now, he's since grabbed two. People may forget. I think you mentioned it last night. They they won that joke Champions Classic game that Kay got pushed to the Cameron to uh, Cameron Indoor, and Michigan State went in and blew their doors off anyway. Um, so Izzo's won two of the last three, but I, I I think with this team, I didn't see that building happening. I mean, let's be honest. They they managed to beat Maryland in the season finale, but prior to that. It was a terrible close. I mean, the the two you you could say okay they beat Purdue and that was a great win at home, but then they went and just played miserably in two straight road games against Michigan and Ohio State, just miserably. And, and there's there hadn't been any level of consistency this team had shown for I don't know give or take two months. Yeah, up to the point. I think in the Big Ten tournament. We saw them play, and I'll count the Maryland game because for about 36 minutes, that was a great performance that got tainted a little bit by the way they closed it. But take that game, a great game against Wisconsin, and I think a pretty damn good game and a loss against Purdue. And then last night, and you can see maybe this team waited till the very last possible moment to kind of figure it out and pull it together and start playing the way they're capable of playing. But you can make a case that that is what's happened. Now, is that going to be enough on Sunday afternoon, evening? We'll see. But I do think that you can make a case that once again, they left it very, very late, but Izzo may have his team playing at or near its best when it matters most. Yeah. I, I definitely feel the momentum and I think, yeah, you definitely didn't think a month ago or again, like you said, six, seven weeks, seven games ago, that there's any chance of this sort of run happening. And and to the point of the point of a run, it's like a run in a basketball game, right? You go in a 20 to 0 run. Well, you never know when that first two points is, right? There's the first two points or three points in a run. You don't know when it is. And if, if it, maybe we've, maybe the very big 10 tournament was the first two or the first two games, right? And then you, have a, you expect it that you feel more comfortable, obviously, if you've been in a run for a while that you're going to be able to sustain something, but clearly it just time will tell as always. Well, let's get into a little bit but, more. Oh, but to, to that, to that last point before we, before we go forward, um, sometimes being in a run, one that you've sustained for a while, actually isn't a good sign in a one-and-done environment. Case in point, the Iowa Hawkeyes. I know, yes, my Hawkeyes, yes. <laughs> yeah, they're an excellent example. It's like the guy who's hit 10 shots in a row. At some point, you're going to get that 11th not going to fall. And you don't know when it is. The math but, is yeah. The math is working against you. Or, yeah. Or as they say, water always finds its level. So, <laughs> so. Right. That's it. Yeah. Right. So basics again, Tom Izzo, 23 and six in the second weekend, uh, second game of a weekend, like you mentioned before in the tournament, two and three against coach K in the tournament and three and 12 overall versus coach K. I'm not sure if you are aware of this, but coach Krzyzewski, this is his last season coaching at Duke. <laughs> I'm not sure if you're familiar with that, really? or aware of that, that he's, uh, he's retiring after this year. <laughs> that might be a wow, storyline. I haven't heard anything. I hadn't heard anything about that. That's pretty. That's pretty wild. That seems important. We might have to try and adjust some of the things we're going to talk about here today. Based on that, so Duke this year is twenty nine and six. They're sixteen and four in the ACC. And what we've what is definitely a down year, but you know, the conference showing so far for the ACC has looked pretty good. Uh, the regular yeah. season champions of that conference, number ten overall in Ken Palm, whereas Michigan State is now thirty eighth. 
If we look at the specifics on offense, they are number six offense overall in the country, 30th in three-point percentage at 36.9%. They're 11th in two-point percentage and 20th in turnover percentage, 61st in offensive rebounding percentage. And then as far as free throw lines, uh, 246 in free throw attempts per field goal attempts and only 120th in field, uh, free throw percentage at 73.3%. Length of possession, 171, which is about dead smack in the middle, a little bit, maybe a little bit slow pace. Yeah, I, I think uh, there's a few things to be gleaned from that. The overall picture is this is a this is a pretty good offensive team. I, I don't think there's much doubt about that. They have a lot of guys who can do things well individually. You know, Paolo Banchero, who we'll talk about at more length, is. I think pretty clearly one of the best offensive players in America. He's a guy who's likely to be a top five pick in the upcoming NBA draft. And with good reason, I, I, I was fortunate enough to witness him playing up a year. So this goes back to, I guess it must've been 2019. Yeah. The spring of 2019. So he was heading into his junior season in high school and I saw him playing up a level against the family, which is the Detroit-based AAU team in EYBL. And so Banchero, a year younger, playing against a guy like Isaiah Jackson, who ended up at Kentucky and is now in the NBA, you know, good opposition. And Paolo Banchero was a man amongst boys. He just, even playing up, he just physically dominated that game. So I knew after seeing that, okay, this guy's legit. He's going to be great. When Duke got him, it's all right. They've got their next great individual player. And he's mostly, I think, delivered on that. He's he's not without flaws, as we will get into, but um, he's the guy who I think is clearly the number one option and the guy you most worry about. But they surround him with a number of good shooters. You mentioned the three-point shooting is pretty damn good. Um, they've got some size both banchero is an interior player at about 6'9 240 he's strong and then they have mark williams who's a seven footer who's not a huge scorer but he's a double digit guy and he can certainly play as well a bunch of shooters on the perimeter uh probably the best is aj griffin another freshman who's likely to be a one and done and the turnover margin is important is important too so duke's not kicking the ball around uh, so you can't expect that they're likely to make a lot of um, self-inflicted errors, you know. Uh, that all helps their overall offense. The offensive rebounding, decent number. Again, they've got some size. They got real problems at the other end, which we'll get to in a minute. But on the offensive side, pretty good. And we know that's been an issue for Michigan State, defensive rebounding. So they'll have to be on top of that. Uh, you mentioned pace of play is you know middling they don't really want to run particularly uh and i think in part that's because they like to utilize their size you know those two guys banchero and williams are important to them the one thing that i do think is interesting from a stylistic point of view is you mentioned the free throw numbers both the frequent well primarily the frequency they're getting there but they're also kind of a middling free throw shooting team not horrible but not great uh they don't get to the line very much. So this is a Duke program that for a while had been, I mentioned, I think last night we were talking about that 2015 national championship team was other than Jaleel Okafor, it was basically spread the floor guys take a fullback dive to the rim and hope to get fouled. Yeah. The ugly, horrible, horrific, aesthetically 
uh, bankrupt brand of basketball. <laughs> this team doesn't do that. They don't have guys who do that. So you probably aren't going to be looking at a lot of at dribble containment being a huge factor for Michigan State. Any team can do that if you're not guarding them well, but it's not what Duke looks to do by design. They're they're much more of a jump shooting team and then play through Banchero and kind of let him operate both in the post and facing up. Um, not really a, a heavy, heavy dribble drive team. Yeah, it's interesting that Duke will change up their offense from time because I think you could say Michigan State pretty much has the same offense under Tom Izzo that they run about the same mm, way. I would differ with that. Do, do you think I, of I it from year to year, that. or do you think it's like it's evolved yeah. over the last twenty years? Yeah. With no, from with with his with his personnel, and I, and I'll tell you, this is a trap that I think Michigan State fans fall into too often. Um, there's this assumption because it was true at the beginning of Izzo's career that Michigan State is a set-heavy program, and it is at some at certain points, but there have also been periods in recent years. Denzel's senior year, Cassius's junior and senior year, where Michigan State didn't run many sets at all. Everything was predicated on ball screen and movement. The, the 2016 team was maybe the closest thing I've seen collegiately to what the Golden State Warriors do, uh, as any, certainly in the Big Ten. I mean, that was a team that was just predicated on screening, outstanding passing, and just incredible three-point shooting with enough interior offense through Costello mixed in to keep people honest. So, no, I, I don't think I, think, I think Izzo doesn't get enough credit for being willing to change with his personnel. I think it it's happened more often with Krzyzewski um, because he basically is taking a team of, of high school all-stars and that's going to vary from year to year uh, in terms of what you've got. Like for MSU, because they don't tend to have turnover that frequent with that frequency, they can maybe stick with an approach for a little longer. Yeah. You know, I'd say even this year's team, do they run sets? Absolutely. But they're not exclusively, they're not like MSU was in the Cleves era. Not at all. And that's in part because Izzo's adjusted. And that's in part because I think the game has changed. It's, it's so dependent on ball screen action now that, you know, you really can't. And that's why it was so important for MSU to go get Tyson Walker. And then, Hey, they had the added bonus that AJ Hogard decided to become a real player too. They've got two guards who are really good in ball screen action. And so that's, you know, that's not set based basketball. So yeah, that's, that's where I would differ with that a little yeah. bit. Okay. And I would say, I feel like the Travis Walton years, there were a lot more sets back then, but I think it's because they just struggled offensively to get shots. You yeah. Had, right. And so you well, would definitely see that you definitely see is a directing the offense more. Whereas now I think to your point, there's sort of like a natural sort of, flow to what they're doing yeah. you kind of have an idea they have a strategy i guess you'd say uh, especially when you have a guy like valentine or a guy like winston man it's your best bet is going to be put the ball when those guys are matured notice they didn't do it when cassius was a freshman they didn't do it when denzel was a freshman by the time those guys are juniors and seniors they get it yeah you know and you can let them kind of be at the controls a little more we'll talk about the defense for Duke overall. They are 41st overall in defense. They're 60th against threes, and um, they do a pretty good job of limiting attempts. They're 55th against twos, and their block percentage is 27th in the country. They don't generate turnovers. They're number 303 in the country, and defensive rebounding is poor at 211, so there's definitely some room to get something there, but they also don't foul. They're number two in the country as far as 
free throw attempts to field goal attempts. Uh, and that, of course, drive, I'm sure, Michigan State fans bananas this game that they're not getting calls, right? So that's going to be one of, the, one of the things, which some is it, maybe there is a little bit of that uh, blue wall, but also probably part of it is just the fact that they just don't play that physical, uh, risky yeah. sort of defense. And the fact that they don't turn the ball over on people suggests that they're not someone who's probably out there trying to get four terms and getting it, your reach-ins and things like cheap fouls in the perimeter. Yeah, I, I think that's that's all. Uh, those are all points very well made. I, I I would say this. I saw Duke in November, so early, uh, and I'm trying to remember which game it was. It was a heavyweight game, maybe UCLA. They're playing somebody who was another top five team preseason, and what I saw from Duke that that night was incredible ball pressure on the perimeter. It looked like the way case teams played 10, 15, 20 years ago. This gets lost in the, in the fog of memory, but Duke's program was in large part built defensively. In my opinion, at least, I don't know if Duke fans would agree with that, but that's what I think. And specifically they were really good with high ball pressure in the half court. They were never a full court trapping team, none of that. But they would, I can remember games Michigan State played against them where their guards just would take Michigan State out of everything they wanted to do in the half court. As as Kay moved into this um, latter phase of his career and decided to go the one and done route, for whatever reason, because the guys he was recruiting weren't suited to it, or he just didn't feel like he had the time to reach such young players before they were gone, whatever it was, he went away from it. I, I remember being laying a virtual guarantee down with that great team that they had in 2018 that beat Michigan state in the champions classic in a great game to open the season. And people were raving about them. You know, that was the Marcus Bagley group. And my take was, K is playing zone. <laughs> he's playing zone because he has to, because either he doesn't feel he's got the athletes or he doesn't feel he can teach anything else to them in enough time. And they're not going to win this thing. They're not even going to get to the final four because they're, they have basically abdicated any willingness to actually go out and really check somebody. Instead, they're going to play a half-ass zone. And it's not a Syracuse zone. It's just a half-ass zone. And sure enough, that's what happened to that group. So I saw this sign. I'm getting back to this year's team. I saw early signs that made me think, wow, he's going to go out with a bang. He's He's got these guys playing the way they used to. And that's a, that's a good thing for Duke. They don't do that anymore. Why they've opted, I, I'll admit, I don't lock into every game Duke plays. Uh, but why they opted to move away from that, I don't know, but I think it was a mistake. Uh, and it's reflected in part in the turnover percentage. Not that you're necessarily looking to generate a bunch of turnovers, but it tells you something about the way that they're playing. Uh, the lack of fouls also, as you pointed out, tells you that. They're not gambling much, but it also means they're not applying good hard ball pressure on the perimeter either. Because if they were, they'd probably get whistled a little more often. They're playing it safe. And they're not nearly as bad as that 2018 group was. But it's interesting. I noticed something watching the Fullerton game. 
And then I read an article in The Athletic this morning. They, there was a reporter for The Athletic that was embedded with the Cal State Fullerton team as they prepared for that game. And the comments that Fullerton's coaching staff, I thought, dovetailed completely with what I saw on the court and what I expect we may see tomorrow when it comes to Duke defensively. They are not well connected. We always talk about that when Michigan State is defending well, they're connected or five on a string. What that means is everybody is doing a good job guarding their man, but they're also dialed in to help responsibilities. And so even if a guy gets an advantage on one player, somebody else is there to lend help and at least make it a tough shot. That's what we mean by connected. Duke is not well connected right now from what I can see. They gave up a ton of penetration to Fullerton. Fullerton didn't hit a lot of shots at the rim. That was their problem. But they gave up a lot of penetration to them. And I think specifically something to watch for, Banchero, for all his ability on the offensive end, is a pretty bad defensive player. And I think if you're Michigan State, you might want to go to a heavy dose of ball screen with the point guard and four man, as opposed to Bainham or marble go with Hauser or hall. Since that's who Banchero is likely to be guarding, put him in ball screen a lot early and let's see what he can do. Because I have a feeling that's an area Michigan state can exploit either way. If he's, if he's sagging, I think Michigan State obviously has four men that have proven they can hit threes. If he's up, playing high, that's where you hope an A.J. Hogarth or Tyson Walker can take him to the rim and finish. So that's something that I would be particularly dialed into as a Michigan State fan early in that game is to see how that works. But just in general, I think Duke is not even as good a defensive team as their numbers say they are. I'm not impressed by what I saw from them defensively. Um, so we'll see if that holds true tomorrow. Sure. And, and numbers are only, you know, they're only comparison of what you've experienced, what you played, right? If you, if Duke were to play in the big South, they might have great defensive numbers, but when they start playing different competition or different well, offensive types, right? Well, totally changes. Or just, or just the, you know, sometimes the night I, I, I watched that, you know, we were, uh, we were talking about Loyola uh, just before we started recording. I thought Loyola was a horrendous draw for Ohio State in a 7-10 game. Because note, Ohio State is a truly terrible defensive team on the season. <laughs> really bad. Really bad. Great offensively, but a terrible defensive team. And I thought, man, Loyola is just going to, those experienced guys are just going to pick them apart. And they'll defend well enough to hold Ohio State in check. Well, Ohio State played its defensive game of the year. They were spectacular defensively. Where that came from, I have no idea. <laughs> it wasn't Loyola just missing shots. If you watch the game, you know. Ohio State guarded at a very high level. They looked connected. They were dialed in on their individual responsibilities, but they were connected to each other. It was impressive. So sometimes a team in this format can go out and just defy everything that a season's worth of statistics tells you they are. Yeah, well, you never expect... St. St. Peter's would beat Kentucky, right? You play that game a hundred times. They probably lose 99 and a half of them. Right. <laughs> and yet they right. won. Right. They won in the tournament. Right. And that's, that's the beauty of the tournament. And sometimes the uh, frustration that you feel if it's your team that goes down. Well, let's move on to the starters for Duke. We'll start with Jeremy Roach. He's a six, one sophomore played last year's game at Cameron indoor arena, averages 8.3 points a game. He shoots 40, 34, 75, 
108 assists to 50 turnovers, so pretty good 2-1 to one average. But it also, with the 108 assists, only makes him number three on the team in assists. So he's not, I guess you'd say, the primary playmaker when it comes to Duke's offense. He's not. Uh, he's been, I mean, he's okay. He's a solid player, but Roach was, you know, another one of the annual line of supposed superstars. And oftentimes they do pan out that way for Duke. Sometimes they don't. He was a big disappointment last year, and he's been better this season, but only to a degree. Shooting numbers are okay, 34% from three. You've got to respect him, but he's not hes not their best shooter by a long shot. And even though he's nominally the point guard, he's not really the playmaker. That's Wendell Moore, um, who we'll talk about in a second. But um, Roach is okay, just not the superstar he was billed to be when they brought him in last year the the fact that he's already in his second year and and probably is going to be playing a third tells you he hasn't met expectations because the expectation for every duke recruit is you only do one year yeah right just the same as kentucky right like everybody on that starting lineup thinks oh i'll be in the nba but of course there are only so many spots in the in the lottery in the draft that you can actually take up uh so moving on to uh aj griffin he's a 6'6 freshman wing Griffin averages 10.4 points a game. He shoots 50, 46, so a nice three-point shooting, and 76 to the line. Leads a team with 65 made threes in the season, which is 15 more than anyone else on the team. So he's obviously the the perimeter threat we need to worry about. That's that's where he's not exclusively a three-point shooter, but that's where he does his most damage. And yeah, he's he's legit. He is a guy who will almost certainly be one and done. Uh, I think his future is definitely as a as a uh, sniper at the NBA level. I'm not sure whether he'll be good enough to be a starter or, you know, a rotation guy, but at the, at this level, he's dangerous. Yeah. Well, then moving on to one of the more who you alluded to earlier, he's a six, six junior averaging 13 and a half points a game and five and a half rebounds per game, shooting 51, 41, 79 leads a team with assists and average 4.6 a game, which is a lot, especially <laughs> for a forward, uh, better than a two to one assist to turnover ratio. And I guess, you know, he's obviously going to be a matchup struggle for us on defense. Yeah, uh, I think other than Banchero, and it's even arguable there, he's Duke's most important player offensively. You look at everything he does, good rebounder, good shooter, second leading scorer, uh, and leads them in assists. I mean, not too far under five assists per game is pretty damned good. Uh, The issue with him... And he's an example of a guy who's had to stick around at Duke. He was another Ballyhooed guy, didn't end up going early. He's a junior, which, you know, in Duke's program makes you the equivalent to Methuselah. But <laughs> um, but he's uh, – he, we'll see what happens with him. He took uh, – some may have noticed in the postgame, Krzyzewski was going on one of his famed lectures, rants, this one I happen to agree with him. Yes, on, I think so too. He yeah. was talking, yeah, he was talking about the fact that they were playing on top of ice. So this is also an ice rink. There's minor league hockey there, I believe, that's played in Greenville. And he was saying that's a real problem because it produces floors that have condensation, and you end up with a lot of slips. And he's correct. I have no, I always go back to that horrific Big Ten ACC challenge game against Virginia yeah, forever canceled, ago, right? where it had to be canceled, right? Um, the NCAA has more than enough venues available to it that this should never happen. And I don't care that, oh, Greensville has their turn and they deserve – screw that. Safety of the players is most important. So I'm with Kay on this. 
it, it relates to more because he took a fall in that Fullerton game and apparently hurt his hip badly enough. He didn't come back in in the second half or didn't play much in the second half. Uh, he says, I, I saw their press conference from earlier today. He says he's going to play. I'm sure he's going to play. The question is, at what level does he play? So that's another thing to keep in the back of your mind and see if that is, in fact, affecting him at all. Yeah, well, especially if it's a person who's sort of your linchpin of your offense and why your offensive efficiency, you're number six, right? If you're number six overall, it's you've got to have all those pieces working in harmony and you, the main guy. And he's the facilitator. Yeah, he's right. The, he's the, he's kind of, you know, he and Banchero in different ways are the two fulcrums of that offense. Well, let's talk about so, Banchero. He probably, Banchero is the 6'9 freshman who is uh, destined for the NBA next year, averaging 17 points a game, almost eight boards a game, leading Duke in both those categories, shoots 48, 31, 73. I guess the only thing you'd say against him is that he's only shooting 31% from three. Right, and that's been a surprise to me. Having seen him before he got to Duke, I, I thought he he would be a better shooter than that, and he may well be. I, I think, you know, as a Pistons fan, if the Pistons are in a position where he falls to them and it makes sense, I would my hope would be, all right, give this kid a couple of years and he's going to get that dialed in because I think he, I think he looks like a guy who should shoot better than that. But that is one weakness. If you can limit him to jumpers, that's you take those odds. Uh, I think the other thing, obviously, is Michigan State, Hauser and Hall being the two guys likely to guard him. They got to be careful because they're both so important MSU. Banchero is the kind of guy that can create foul trouble because he's active. He's got it plays with a high motor generally, and he's so damn big and strong that he can create trouble for you if you're not if you're not very, very careful. But he's he's the guy offensively you got to worry about. I mentioned a few moments ago, though, at the other end. I think he's a guy that you can exploit. And I, I would expect that Tom Izzo is right now or already has devised the ways he's going to attack him. And now it's just about imparting that to the, to the team. But, um, you know, if, if Joey Hauser is dialed in, if we see a resurrection from Malik Hall, that could be a good thing. And I do think those guys are going to have opportunities. Is he the kind of player who's going to drive from, say, the three-point line into the lane and, and score on you and draw fouls that way? Or is he a guy who has to he get can, it in the post yes. more to, to get up and score? Both. Both. Yeah. yeah. He's a he's an all-purpose kind of offensive player. He can do either of those things. So, yeah, you have to be you have to be really dialed in with him. It's not a simple thing to guard. Sounds like a guy should be in the NBA. <laughs> so we'll go to, exactly. We'll go to Mark Williams, who's our seven-footer, the center. Although I feel like every, no one really wants to admit they're a center anymore. Everyone's a forward. You know, like Marcus Bingham. Yeah. I always think it's funny. Yeah. So uh, Mark Williams, seven-foot sophomore, averaging 11.1 points per game, seven, uh, a little over seven rebounds a game, and almost three blocks a game. Yeah. Seven-foot, seven-inch wingspan. Now, to put that into perspective, I believe Marcus Bingham has a seven-four That's what they wingspan. always say, yeah. I think Jaron Jackson was seven five, was either seven four or seven five, and those two guys are freaks, right? Mark <laughs> Williams is seven seven seven. It's interesting with him. You know, he was on their team last year, and if he played last season in the game at Cameron, it was for a minute. It took him until the ACC tournament last year to really have a breakthrough. And he carried that over to his credit into this season and has put up pretty damn good numbers, you know, double digit score, seven boards a game. That's all right. It's decent production. 
Uh, he's a defensive terror with that wingspan, that length. So he's a guy that, you know, Michigan State, we know A.J. Hogard, such an important part of their attack now as a penetrator. Well, when Williams is in the game, now he only plays 23 minutes a game, so his conditioning, thank God, doesn't allow him to be out there <laughs> for 35. But when he's on the floor, that is that is definitely something you have to be conscious of, the same way that teams are conscious of Bingham. You know, it's a it's a similar thing. Um, the one negative I would say about Williams is, and this is gleaned from uh, reading some Duke-oriented media on him, that there there is a feeling that he is not always a hundred percent dialed in in terms of effort and energy. He can have a tendency to drift, which unfortunately is frequently an issue with big men. You see it more commonly in them. And, and the reason for that, I, I really, I don't know whether it's that you're that huge, you're forced into a sport. Maybe you don't actually love it. Um, that could be a reason. I think it depends on the individual, but it seems to pop up more with big kids than, than perimeter players, let's say. Uh, regardless, it is an issue. So Duke absolutely needs him to be dialed in. Maybe it's more uh, to do with the fact that you're you relying on others to get the ball to you, and so it's easy to kind of just lose That's focus. Because... It's like playing right field in softball, right? Like you're barely you're vaguely uh, engaged in the game. So let's go to the reserves. Trevor Keels is he's six foot four, two hundred twenty pound freshman guard, averaging eleven point seven points a game on forty one, thirty two, and sixty eight of shooting. Uh, he also got injured recently, so he's been a little bit. I guess he was a starter, and now he's sort of moved into the re- the reserve role. Yeah, as of the last game, it's funny. So he got hurt, calf injury, and and he's the guy who I think is the biggest part of what I was talking about at the outset. This change from what I saw early from Duke versus what they are now. When I saw them in November. Keels was a monster on the perimeter. He's he's six four, but about two hundred twenty pounds. He's he's strong and he's athletic. And he was a guy that I thought was just going to be a terror uh, as a perimeter defender. You know, applying high ball pressure, just wrecking half court offenses, all that kind of stuff. It, it and he also was shooting much better early in the season. Uh, the three point shot has declined in efficiency. He had a calf injury in late January. Came, missed like four games, I think, came back, and he had been in the starting lineup up until the Fullerton game, and Kay opted to go with Jeremy Roach instead of instead of him as a starter. Uh, he's still playing a lot, but I'll, I'll use the Fullerton game as an example. He's averaging 31 minutes a game on the season. He played 21 against Fullerton. So that's a pretty, pretty significant decline. I don't know what we're likely to see from him. He's a very talented kid physically, no doubt about that. Has all the tools you want. But again, the shooting's been erratic as the seasons went along, and I just don't feel like he's ever managed to fully get back on the beam as to where he was in November and December, where it looked like he was just going to be a, a, a monstrous player. Yeah, well, you definitely see it with lower lower body injuries, right? Those players, if you don't have your legs in basketball, yeah. it's tough to sometimes uh, get back to where you were. We said we saw John Josh Langford for years. Exactly. Uh, Theo John is another reserve. He's six nine, two hundred forty pound senior. He's a transfer from Marquette. He averages two point nine points a game, two point six rebounds a game in about eleven minutes. Shoots fifty nine from the floor and sixty three at the line. You know, I, I thought this was a really interesting choice when he made 
she made the uh, choice to transfer to Duke because it seemed obvious to me that Williams was going to be the guy given the way he had closed last season and, and all his measurables. And John was a pretty good player at Marquette. And I understand they had a coaching change. You know, Wojo got fired and, um, and Shaka Smart comes in. But I just I, – I, I don't understand these moves. If you're a fan of a program like Duke, great, you know, because John is, is at least a proven high major player who can help you. And he's playing about 11 and a half minutes a game this year, so he has helped them. But why do you make that decision if you're Theo John to go someplace that you're only going to play 11 and a half minutes? If your goal is to be a professional – I think you want to play more than that in your last season. It just I, – I, I didn't understand it when he did it, and the way the season's played out, I still don't understand it. Um, but regardless, he's their backup five, and that's important because, as we said, Williams can't really go – Williams is very analogous to Marcus Bingham in a lot of ways. Much like with Markey, you're not going to get 30 minutes out of him. It's just not going to happen. So you need another option there, and that's what John gives them. And finally, we have got Joey Baker. He's a 6'6 senior, uh, plays about 14 minutes a game, averages four and a half points, shoots 43, 41, 78. And uh, he's, I guess, a three-point specialist off the bench if they need him. That's that's his role, you know. Give you 12 minutes a game, hit, come in, hit a three or two. Um, yeah, that's that's his thing. And he's, and he's evolved into a pretty good option in that way for them. What's remarkable is of those four of their senior starters, and actually you could almost argue if when Keel was the starter, all four of their starters average over 10 points a game. And what I think we have, the state has one player averaging over 10 points a game. Gabe Brown still averages, I think, I think he's the still highest, the leading scorer on our team. And he's the yes. only one averaging over double digits, which is pretty remarkable. For, <laughs> you, you look at our team, you wonder who could even score, but it's just so random when people score. I think it's really <laughs> what yeah, the answer. Yeah, and it's... You know, it's that spread where they've got so many guys between six and 11 points, you know, and the, there's two sides to that coin. In my opinion, the negative of course, is you don't have anybody you count on. I, look at last night. Who's got Joey Hauser out of nowhere, 27 <laughs> career high. Yeah. Gabe, Gabe chipped in Hogarth chipped in, but you get very little out of Walker. You get almost nothing out of Christie offensively. You don't get much out of Malik Hall. Uh, you know, in the Duke game, if you're betting, you'd probably bet on one or several of those guys I just mentioned is not doing much to actually produce against Duke. Yeah. You know, and that's the positive is a defense has a really hard time identifying one guy. You know, Michigan State comes in and they know it's pre Banchero and Moore are going to draw the most attention. I don't think there's a guy for Michigan State that you can dial into that way. And so it makes it a little more challenging in, in that respect, I think, if you're scouting Michigan State. Yeah, and I would say we haven't been this way as far as a team for a couple of years. I mean, I'm, last year, of course, was Aaron Henry. I mean, if you could shut down Aaron Henry, there's no scoring on the team. And then before that, it was Tillman and and uh, Winston, right? I mean, it was I, – I feel like we're, we're much more typical teams, like the teams we're facing, where you have a couple leading offensive players and you kind of have an idea what the, the role players – whereas here it's like an almost entirely te a team of role players. That, that, is, that is absolutely true. And, and I don't know that there's ever been a team that Izzo's had. I believe Gabe Brown has the lowest scoring average for a Michigan State scoring leader in like 70 years or something. It was some crazy stat. Um, 
yeah, Izzo's program typically, I mean, even when you came into a season, like I remember people openly wondering the 06-07 team, who the hell is going to score? Well, Drew Neitzel is going to score a lot. That's what happened. Somebody emerged. And usually that's what happens is one or two guys step up, you know, Miles and Jaron Jackson and all those guys leave. You see Josh Langford until he got hurt. And then Cassius Winston all year step into that role. That's been the pattern. This team has been by far the exception. Yeah. And it's, it's, it'd be the argument, I guess, against a run, right? Because you think you've got to have a couple, you've got to have one or two guys you can rely on. I guess, unless you could say, well, we're always going to have one or two guys who's going to pull it off at that game, right? Which is sort of what's been happening most of the season and certainly late. If you're, yeah, if you want to remain an optimist, that's where you have to go. Is that, well, we don't know who it's going to be, but somebody's going to do it. Um, I, I do think in the tournament, it can create a problem for you because uh, as more often than not, you know, legends are born in the tournament for a reason. And they tend to be guys who are really good players that just step forward and go on an individual run. Not that they have to dominate every game, but they're, they're somebody who's producing every game you're playing and you can count on. And Michigan state very clearly does not have that this year. Yeah, they've I mean, got a lot of hopes. Yeah, <laughs> a lot of hopium. Uh, yeah, I think like you know, a late game situation. You probably think if you had to pick one player, you'd say you want Tyson Walker to have the ball because he can create his own shot. He can he can shoot, but you also don't want to Tyson Walker the ball who has two points of the game. You know, it's in the last possession. You're you're relying on a guy who hasn't done anything all game. Can you just turn right. on like like a light switch? You know, I don't know. That's how <laughs> I can only imagine what it's like for right. Isla to try and figure these things out at the end of game situations. Yeah. For sure. You, you don't you don't have that guy. I think it has to be by feel. And so last night, for example, hey, it was pretty obvious. Hauser and Hogard, the H&H boys, those were the guys who were going to be likely who you need to turn to if they had been in it. You know, they weren't in that position, of course. But if they'd been in a position where they needed a bucket late, that's who you would have turned to because they delivered for you all game. But over the course of the season, yeah, there's nobody who's earned that kind of trust. Well, let's move to the five keys for victory for us. So number one, the intangibles. As we might have alluded to earlier, and again, maybe not everyone's aware, this is Coach K's last season as yeah. uh, as coach for, for the Duke Blue Devils. He's picked as a successor, which is exactly what we'd expect Izzo to do at the point when he decides he's retiring. Although I think my guess is with the way Coach K's season has kind of turned into sort of a mini disaster as far as the way the team's performed and to finish the season and the struggle. It's kind of been a circus. A lot of places he's been going. I, I think Izzo, and he's even alluded to it, that he's not going to do it this way. And so it'll be just different. However, either he announced it at the end of the season, like internally people know what's going to happen, but he's not going to announce it to the public ahead of time. And there'll just be some suspicions. I think it'd be a little bit different. I, I would like to, I was, I think it was Jim Comperoni was talking about the amount of coaches that have retired after playing Izzo. So you have um, John Thompson, Rick Majerus. Uh, who else is was there's the uh, coach for Vermont. The last game was against Izzo in the tournament. So Brennan, yeah, yeah, right. So it, it's Brennan. there's uh, there's precedent, I guess, for Izzo sending you home. And so maybe that this is this would be a, another opportunity. And I'm sure there wouldn't be a single tear shed in East Lansing. If this is Coach K's no, last game, no, I think, and I, and actually, 
I think, despite what the ESPNs of the world would have you believe, I think the majority of the college basketball country would not shed a tear. I mean, this guy, I'm old enough to remember when people generally liked Duke and Mike Krzyzewski. When Duke was David in the David and Goliath. Yes, with North Carolina. Went out there, you know, and after that, it was it was the victory over UNLV and the personnel on that team that changed it. It changed the narrative. And that Duke, give them their due. Duke's done an awful lot of winning. They've had great players. They've had great teams. They've won, I think it's five national championships under K. Um, it's, you got to give them their due. But they change. And you're starting to see, in my opinion, something vaguely similar happening with Gonzaga now. I think Gonzaga has gotten to the point where a lot of people who follow college basketball are just kind of tired of them, not to the same level as with Duke. And they haven't won a national title yet, which that would have to happen in order for it to really reach a crescendo. But yeah, um, he's, he's been, uh, I think disliked by a lot, certainly around his conference. (laughs) They don't like him. And I think most of the country who roots for Duke, it's like rooting for the Yankees or like they used to say, rooting for IBM. Who, who roots for Duke unless you're a Duke fan, you know? So, no, I don't think anybody will shed tears. But I think what you got into is one of the intangibles that I think is worth talking about. Because you saw it with that last regular season game, last game, rather, that he coached at Cameron, where they hosted UNC. Everybody expected just a waltz to a victory and a great party and, and you know, let's let's remember all the great times kind of affair. And UNC dropped the hammer on them, gave them the business. And I think my impression has been all of this hype around Kay is a net negative. He's got a very young team, you know, of their six, of their top six guys, the only one who's not a freshman or sophomore is Wendell Moore. And let's be honest, the two sophomores, Roach and Williams, were not huge players last year as freshmen. So it's a very, very young group. And I think it's a lot to put on a group like that that has some great players, but they don't have anybody who strikes me as that, you know, if you've got Bobby Hurley as one of your freshmen, okay, maybe, because that, that guy just has a um, an advanced basketball sense and advanced maturity he can probably handle it magic johnson as a freshman could handle it you know there's some guys i don't see any of banchero's not that great player great talent he's not that so i think it's a lot to put on these guys they know every time out that could be the end and they'd be the guys responsible for k going <laughs> out with a loss do you can you imagine what that feels like and the first game was kind of, okay, Fullerton, you don't figure you're really going to get tested. Now it gets serious. From here on out, you're playing legitimate programs, and you're starting with another heavyweight. You know, there's no other way to put it. The team hasn't played at a heavyweight level, but the program is that. The coach is that. And that can be enough sometimes to get you bit. So I think that's one intangible that matters a lot here. But there's some on the Michigan State side, too. Yeah, I would, and I, would, I mean, I think – just looking at that, the game right now, I mean, Michigan State's kind of playing with house money, right? They won their first round. Yep. They got through the, they got through, you know, this had they lost this game, that had been two straight first first game exits from the NCAA tournament in the last three years. Of course, you know, one year was canceled. 
and I think there would have been more talk and and uh, and now you you've removed that from the conversation. You have these players who have had a chance to win. They're going up against Duke, and I think they just see it as a they've got to just see it as an opportunity. I mean, I think they could come out height or tight, which is entirely possible, but sure. you could also see them come out really loose. And I feel like we're starting to see. What I think what had lacked most of the season is a an emergence of some leadership, and I feel like you're starting to kind of see that from some players who feel more comfortable. I think Hogard feels like he's got a little bit more ability to sort of bark at players and to just. I think he just knows who he is and he what he can do, and I think you're seeing that from Hauser seem very comfortable. I I just think there's some players there who now, who from a from a leadership standpoint are comfortable with their roles and are maybe coming into them, which is usually happens early in the season, like we mentioned, but you know, maybe now at the very last minute, it's all starting to come together. You, you hope so. Um, uh, I, I think that I can't quite get there to believe that 100% yet because this team has confounded me so many <laughs> yeah. other times this season where it felt like they were, you know, look at the Purdue game. Okay. feels like they're turning a corner. Then you go out and play the games at Michigan and at Ohio State, right? I, I do think this seems to have been sustained now, you know, four out of five, right? And the loss wasn't a bad loss. So you can feel a little bit better about it from that perspective. But, yeah, I think anything's possible. I think Michigan State could come out loose and shoot the lights out and, and you know, put Duke on their heels and a, a young Duke team playing with all that pressure just collapses, it could go the other way. It could be. We've seen those, be, those games. Yeah. It could be a game where Michigan State comes out tight for whatever reason. Or it could be a game where, you know, for whatever reason, that, that Duke mystique gets them. That's happened at times. So you just, it's unpredictable. But again, in this setting, and when we talk about intangibles, I go back to 23 and 6 and 1 and 0 against Krzyzewski in the second game of a weekend doesn't mean as we say past does not predict future with with a a perfect level of uh of accuracy but it's not nothing it's actually those are numbers that do have some meaning and i think it suggests at the very least you can expect michigan state is is going to be very well prepared for this game can they execute that's the question Right. Yeah. And in the tournament, we've got a one game winning streak on Duke. So that's that's and they, well. right. And, and have won two of the last three overall against them. So this particular and by the way, the seniors, Gabe Brown, Marcus Bingham, have been around for all of those. Right. <laughs> right. They, They've they, been around for all three of those games. So those guys have beaten Duke twice. So they don't have some of the bat you would think some of the baggage that other teams have had one other point here around this playing loose thing. Sometimes it ends up helping you. Sometimes it doesn't matter, but there's no question. Michigan state comes into this game with very few people believing they're going to win. Yeah. And there is a freedom that that brings you or can bring you, you know, there's nothing like spooling someone's coronation. So hopefully that's what happens. Yeah. Let's move to the second key, second chances. So offensive rebounding, this is a team that offensive rebounds well. We defensive rebound not so well. And it, and even when we have teams that don't offensive rebound well, we seem to just I – mean, even against Davis in the last game, we still gave up a couple of them and twice on free throws. I mean, just stuff that yep. – uh, you know, I'm sure yep. that's half of the reason Izzo's lost some hair and they've turned white just watching yeah. <laughs> well, that two sort of straight years, you have, Two straight years you have missed blockouts 
on the free throw line in the NCAA tournament. It's got to drive them absolutely crazy. But I, I think that it does matter at both ends. Duke is a good offensive rebounding team, not a great one. Michigan State is not a very good defensive rebounding team, but the difference is much more stark at the other end. Michigan State, by its standards, not a very good offensive rebounding team. They're, ninth, I believe, 93rd in the country in offensive rebounding rate. But Duke is a horror show as a defensive <laughs> rebounding team. And, and I've read about this and watched it in some games, but I've read some takes uh, from Duke media, and it really, they think, comes down to this team not being particularly well-connected, and especially a guy like Williams not always being dialed in, which, again, is another comparison point with Marcus Bainham. Marcus will have those games where he looks great, and then he'll have others where he just fogs out. The focus is not where it needs to be, and Michigan State suffers because of it. Uh, Williams is a very, very similar player. And so I think Duke has vulnerability here. I think Michigan State, if they come in playing loosely, playing as if they believe they're, they've got they're, – they're, they're playing with house money, they don't have anything to lose, and they play with some abandon and the motors are revving, they can do damage in terms of second chances in this game. I believe that's a possibility. The next one would be the four spot. That's Banchero up against either Hall or, or Hauser. Yeah, and, and the first thing that people are going to think about, of course, is when Duke has the ball. And I understand it because Banchero is a very gifted offensive player. He's going to be very difficult cover and a guy that, you know, you hope Michigan State can avoid early foul trouble or late foul trouble for that matter. <laughs> um, but but that's that's where the concern is there. He's going to do some damage. He's going to score. But you got to try to limit him as best you can and make him work really hard for what he gets. At the other end, though, I think is where people around the country, at least, are probably less aware of what could happen. Because Ban Banchero really struggles, especially in space, I think, as I said earlier, if Michigan State gets him into pick-and-roll action a lot, and either he's switched on to a guard and he's got to deal with that, or he's not able to get to guys like Hauser and Hall, who are proven shooters, especially Joey, the way he's shooting right now. Malik maybe has taken a little bit of a dive lately, but Joey Hauser has been on fire for about a month. Yeah. He's, from three. He's there was a early in December, you were you cringed every time he lined up a three. And now you're excited when he's taking a three because you assume it's going in. It's totally flipped. This is the Joey Hauser as a shooter that we expected when he transferred in because it's what he did in high school and it's what he did his freshman season at Marquette. So it's not a surprise. It's just he had to battle through whatever he had to battle through last season and maybe the first month and a half, two months of this season. But right now, he's very dangerous. So that matchup at the four is a big one. Duke's going to get some production there, but I think it's possible Michigan State may be able to get some on the other end. Yeah. Well, and I think they need to. They're going to win. At least one of Hauser Hall needs to have a really nice game. Sure. Yeah. And of course, hard to imagine. And of course, the the wild card obviously is his foul trouble. You get Banchero in foul trouble or Hall and Hauser, like you mentioned. It you know there's no there's no backup to Hall and Hauser really. I mean, to tr once you go deeper into the four spot for us. Uh, next one, of course, is the perennial uh, on the key keys of the game turnovers where Duke we mentioned earlier does not turn the ball over much Michigan State in the last five games really solid with the ball really and the the boneheaded turnovers are pretty much gone 
not many moving screens. And so overall, and I think when you have also Hogard has not been charging into uh, disaster like he did earlier in the season too. So a lot of those kind of turnovers have gone away. So, I mean, the edge, obviously it depends. You got to keep it close, right? The last three games combined 15 turnovers or no, I'm sorry. No, that's not right. Probably 23 um, because I think, 18, yeah, 18, yeah. seven, seven and four. Yeah. Right. So 18, um, we've had individual games. For <laughs> yes, Michigan State exactly. And, and this was against good opposition, right? So Wisconsin, Purdue and, and Davidson, not teams that are known for ball hawking, but as we know, that's not required for Michigan state to have 19 turnovers in a game. In fact, you almost feel better about a team that tried other than the Maryland game. I'd feel better about a team that tried to pressure more. Um, but Michigan state seems with the emphasis on the word seems to have solved its turnover problem. This would not be an ideal scenario to have it reoccur because I think you need to be in a spot where you're scoring possibilities, you're scoring chances, meaning possessions where you're getting a shot up at the rim or you're shooting free throws. Um, are, are even. You can't have a be operating with a big deficit, I don't think. Right. And the, that brings us to the final key, which is the threes. Uh, I can, these, obviously, Gabe is, seems to have turned back around, so he's still shooting back to his average, about 35-40% now the last few games. Christie's yep. still been pretty terrible. Uh, he had one good game in there, and then you've got Hall, who seems to be struggling. Walker has had some trouble. He, of course, has a bad ankle. Hauser's been been great, and Aikens has been okay, I think, probably the last few games. And then, obviously, Duke, they rely on that with a lot of their players. Can, I mean, <laughs> much like the Davidson game, yeah. you got a lot of guys who are at risk out there on the line. I think it's – look, I think it's the same, as, the same equation as it's been in a lot of games recently. These are two teams who, over the course of the season, have shot the three very well. Michigan State is on a three-game run where they haven't shot it well at all, but they've won two of those. So they're doing, obviously, other things that have made up for it. Uh, I, I think with some of these guys, Max Christie in particular, is a guy that I think, and I know this is hard, but I think he needs to let the game come to him a little more than he has. I think he's... He's tried to force some stuff. He did against Davidson. I thought he just took some bad shots that he didn't need to take because he's trying to get himself on track. And I don't think he needs to play that way. This is a big game for him, by the way, because of the Michigan State roster, and I'm just quickly in my mind going through this, I think he, yeah, he's the only kid with a Duke offer, and his decision came down to Michigan State and Duke. So I'm sure he views this as, you know, personally – a big, a big matchup. And maybe that'll be enough to spark something from him. But I do think if either team has a big advantage from three, that could spell trouble for the opponent. Do so you, hopefully MSU is loose. Do you see also as not one of the keys, but we could be a key to the game as a transition. We got some stuff done against Davidson a little bit, not much. It seems like uh, from descriptions of Duke, they tend to be kind of leaky. Cal State Fullerton got a lot of looks yep. at the rim and, you would expect that despite, I mean, obviously Duke's got some length and more athleticism that they're going to be tricky sometimes in, on a, in full court. But maybe this is an opportunity not only to get some transition, but maybe get Max a quick early one or two buckets just like Gabe and kind of get them going. Because I feel like once Max gets the first couple to drop, 
then he's a totally different shooter. He's just more relaxed and, and maybe he's going to be more of a threat outside or even with his pull up, you know, 16, 18 footer. That, that would certainly help. I think to get him rolling early. Uh, if I had a sixth key, it would have been that um, overall defensive connectiveness. You know, I feel as if Michigan state has gotten a lot better there lately, you know, over this string of games, including the two Maryland games, they've played very well defensively for the most part. I thought they, I thought they guarded pretty, the numbers, the field goal against numbers don't necessarily tell you that, but they've been playing some high powered offensive teams. Purdue and Davidson are two of the best <laughs> yeah. offensive teams in the country. And now you've got another one in Duke, you know, who's number six. So I'm not going to judge it. You know, if they give up 45% against, that's not necessarily going to mean they played a poor defensive game against Duke, but, I think these two teams, where they're at in terms of defensive connectedness, part of which would be getting back in transition. You know, Duke is in a little better shape than most programs coming in to face MSU because the only program that does it the way Michigan State does traditionally is North Carolina. And they see Carolina two or three times a year. So they would be one. I'm sure their preparation is basically – very similar to what they do against Carolina. So you wouldn't expect that they'd be caught by surprise, but a lot of freshmen, some sophomores who didn't play very much last year, how dialed in are they going to be? That's an open question. So if Michigan State can get some things done early, especially easy baskets in transition, that would bode well. Yeah, clearly we have to avoid the uh, scoring drought to start the game going down 16-2 to two or something like that where – you're going to yes. struggle to come, come back. I mean, Good start. I mean, yeah. that that goes with saying, and to that to their credit, they have not had slow starts the last, at least the last few games during this stretch, uh, since they've been winning. Which I mean, not surprising they sort of are related. Right. What other things? Anything else we didn't touch on with this game? I mean, I I think when looking at the field. I really, I like this matchup. If you're going to get a two seed, I feel like this is a good two seed to get uh, because yeah. I think the intangibles, I think that's to your advantage. I, I'm a, maybe Villanova, you, you could think you could do some things against them, but like, you know, Auburn, I don't know that I want to face Auburn or Kentucky, which of course Kentucky bowed out, but I don't know. I don't think it's a bad draw for us. And, and, and I guess, you know, get past this game and we talk, we talk more about what's in the future because other things can happen, but I think our, I look to your point. I think, I think we have a reasonable chance of winning this game and, Maybe it's not more than 50%, but it's it's not close to zero. No, it's a non-zero chance for sure. Michigan State has a shot. And and that's, you know, this season, last two seasons really, the way they've gone, that's all you can ask for if you're Michigan State is have an opportunity to get a big win, to move on. Um, yeah, and what you were saying about Duke, uh, look, Duke shouldn't have been a two seed. I think on the merits, Tennessee should have had that that two line been on the two line uh, Duke should have been a three, but you know, coach K coronation, you know, it's the whole thing. So now that's what you're dealing with. Your Michigan state, you know, you get the opportunity that I think everybody wants, which is bury this guy. You know? <laughs> right. Yeah. And Izzo doesn't look, I mean, Izzo's got res- a lot of respect for him and, and vice versa. So it's not like Izzo's on any kind of personal jihad, no. but, um, he wants to do this very, very badly. You can be mostly because it means his guys get a chance to keep playing and he gets a chance to keep coaching. And so we'll see. Yeah. I mean, I mean, here before 
he didn't shed a tear for Foster Lore losing that game yesterday. And uh, but I mean, obviously, he like he loves the guy and would be happy to have him come back to coaching or something like that. But you know, these are professionals, and this is what you do. This is this is why you're in right. the game to compete, and you want to compete against the best. And if you're in it, right? If you're in it as long as Tom Izzo's been in it, you're going to be playing friends or at least people that you have a lot of respect for all the time, right? Yeah, that's just how. Unless you're a complete, you know, psychopath, and you're you're going to have relationships with people. Yeah, you know. And, and so that's how it is. Well, I'm definitely looking forward to the game. I'm sure everyone else is going to be sitting at the edge of the seat. It'll be another stressful game. I'm sure. Uh, I hope so. I guess I, I, the one worry, of course, the one worry is always you know, the blowout that you just get wiped out by halftime, but I don't think that'll happen. We'll see. It's the game will be five o'clock uh, or a little after five Sunday afternoon. And we'll have the post game analysis after that game. Go green. <laughs> At Granger, we're for the ones who pay attention to every little detail. The ones who fuss, tinker, and sweat the small stuff. Because you know the tiniest thing can make the biggest difference when it comes to keeping business moving. We get it. We're the same way. Offering access to product experts to help you quickly and easily find what you need. So whatever your industry, you know you're always getting professional-grade products. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.